Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program providing a gender analysis of contemporary issues from Australia and internationally. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, Women on the Line continues to look at the campaigns and strategies for the prevention of violence against women. Gender Victoria held a conference on this issue in June 2019. On the program last week, we brought you two speeches that were delivered at that conference, and this week we bring you another two. Later in the program, we'll hear from Lydia Thorpe, a Gunai Gundijimara woman and First Nations activist. But first up, we hear from a health educator from the organisation RED, which stands for Resourcing Health and Education, which is a specialist service for the sex industry in Victoria. Morning, everyone. Um, so yeah, I work for Red. Uh, we're a funded health service, and I'm here with my friend Jane Green from Vixen, um, the non-funded peer organisation. Uh, I don't want to get too much into what we do as a service because um, I really wanted to speak to um, the experience of sex workers um, when we're so just to kind of I guess arm you with that when you're thinking about violence prevention. Um, so if you wanted to know anything about what we do, then I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, so, yeah, um, being asked to talk about primary prevention of violence against sex workers uh, felt like a somewhat challenging task, um, even though that's part of my role and uh, maybe more than a little bit depressing. Uh, so a lot of the social indicators that promote or facilitate sexual violence um, that Anne uh, discussed before, the, the gender drivers, um, rigid gender roles, male entitlement, acceptance of violence is key to masculinity, structural and pay inequity, social isolation and disadvantage, and systems that don't take a strong stand against sexual violence. Uh, they're the same for sex workers as other, other people who are vulnerable to that kind of violence, but they're magnified and layered many times. It's tricky as a sex worker talking to people outside the industry about your job because in the civilian mind, um, that's our word for you, <laughs> um, there are two types of sex worker. Um, so there's the desperate victim and the empowered and glamorous woman. I can't think of any other line of work that we have such a calcified binary thinking about. Um, the truth is that sex workers are university students, mums, married and single, career sex workers, survival sex workers, opportunistic workers, activists, uh, migrants and travellers from 16 to 65. Um, and I'm aware that mentioning underage sex work isn't uncontroversial, but I don't want to brush over that that does happen. Um, they're straight, cis and white, um, and many are queer and or trans. Um, actually, Jane just said before, um, some research that Vixen did in Victoria found that 70% of sex workers here were um, queer um, or trans, and many are from racialized groups. So importantly, other elements of your identity, um, as we've been discussing about intersectionality, uh, you guys were discussing that, I think, specifically yesterday, um, other elements of your identity affect how you're seen as a sex worker um, and how legitimate your choices are. So people often want to know how you, um, how or why you got into the industry. 
um, and that forms a part of that story. But honestly, why do you get up and go to work every morning, even if you're up until 3am binging Handmaid's Tale? We've all got bills to pay, maybe a cat or some kids to feed. Some days you get up and you're feeling motivated, you're looking forward to um, seeing your colleagues and your clients, you feel good about yourself and motivated to make money. You're smiling, you're on your way to work, you might have music blaring in your car stereo or on your headphones in the tram. Um, and some days it's just a drag, um, Monday or Friday night blues. To be fair, there are some specific reasons why the sex industry is appealing. It's very flexible for people who are studying, working another job, have a family, uh, or have chronic health issues. Having a job where you can choose when, where, and how you work is exactly what some people need. Uh, it's also one of the only industries where women uh, earn more than men and have more opportunities than men. So, as I said, it's kind of hard to talk about your job with non-sex workers. Uh, partially... partially <clears throat> Uh, this is because, as well as potentially receiving questions, looks, disgust, fetishizing and invasive curiosity, and a vast array of assumptions, um, but those stereotypes that I talked about, um, they, those figures really loom large in our minds as well. The stigma of the sex worker doesn't come just from the outside in, uh, but it's wormed its way into our heads, and we can find ourselves thinking in those stereotypes about ourselves and each other. So stigma is dangerous for sex workers. It keeps us isolated. It's a barrier to accessing health and other services. It means that when we report, um, we fear not being believed, being blamed, and we have reason to even more than the average person who's going to report that kind of violence. Um, sex workers are often dismissed, laughed off, interrogated, or worse, when we approach the institutions that are supposed to protect us. And for those reasons, as well as for the very real fear of being outed, most often sexual violence um, against sex workers is not reported. So I don't feel the need to go over in this room um, that sexual assault was underreported or the reasons why, but imagine if you were considering reporting your assault to the police and not only did you have to consider the possibility you'd be questioned about how much you'd had to drink or what you were wearing, um, but that... Uh, the person you're reporting to could possibly say, and this does happen, um, it's part of your job. If you don't like it, get out of the industry. Um, or worse, you could be charged with a crime. So sex work in Victoria is regulated with a licensing system, meaning that some ways of working are legal and some are illegal. Um, the system plays out, plays out along lines of race and class. Um, those most vulnerable to police attention are often already marginalised, such as racialised groups, queer and trans workers, street workers, um, people who use drugs and those in unlicensed brothels, which are often populated by uh, migrant workers who um, may uh, be in a precarious visa situation. Police bias against those communities means that the experiences are often doubly traumatic and particularly in the context of drug user and migrant workers, um, they risk potentially criminalising themselves when going to report violence. Partial criminalisation means that not all workers have equal access to justice and often it's the most marginalised that lose. Additionally, the full or partial criminalisation of sex workers, although purportedly for our own protection, contributes to stigma, reinforces negative stereotypes about us and supports the idea that the work is inherently violent. Outside of a model of full decriminalisation, sex workers often have to choose between making money or working within the law um, and employing safety practices or working within the law. In Victoria, the industry is regulated by Consumer Affairs Victoria, 
the Business Licensing Authority, WorkSafe and Victoria Police. Barriers to reporting violations of our human and worker rights, um, uh, barriers to reporting those violations of our human rights and worker rights by owners, managers and clients to those institutions include a lack of clarity even within and between the institutions themselves about whose role is what, um, the anticipated stigma and victim blaming, the very real possibility of being outed to the community as a worker um, by going through an official reporting process with WorkSafe or the police, as well as the known um, secondary trauma of those processes in themselves. Uh, the small possibility of a satisfactory outcome to the victim survivor and the general lack of accountability of those bodies protecting the rights of sex workers. So additionally to that lack of accountability, um, that's known by perpetrators. Um, so they can act with impunity. And an example of that is Adrian Bailey, who raped several sex workers before he went on to kill Jill Marg. Um, and relevant to, I guess, the structural kind of context of violence prevention um, is that it, as recently as 2016, the rape sentencing guidelines um, had a clause in them that meant that offenders could have a reduced sentence um, with the context of whether the victim survivor was a chaste woman. Um, so yeah, obviously sex workers didn't meet that. Um, and my colleague here was actually like involved in having those reformed. Victim is a prostitute was the name of the clause. Yeah, so that's, that's as recently as 2016. So that's the kind of context that we're working in here. Um, so I'll just say in closing that the current culture and climate, the stigma that sex workers experience means that um, clients feel entitled to our bodies, that society, including the services that are supposed to care for us and protect us, view us as somehow to blame or a less worthy victim um, uh, of sexual violence. And anything but full decriminalisation in all areas of the industry means a choice between making a living safely um, and working within the law. Sex work is work. Rape is not a part of the job. It shouldn't be a crime to work in a way that protects your autonomy and safety. And if you want to know how to protect sex workers, listen to them and they'll tell you. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard from an educator from the health organisation RED, which is a specialist service for the sex industry in Victoria. Next up, Lydia Thorpe, a Gunai Gundijimara woman and First Nations activist. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people on whose land we stand today uh, and acknowledge that we are on stolen land, unceded land, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people and acknowledge their survival and resistance over 230 years of assimilation and attempted genocide to wipe our people out. The Wurundjeri people, to have them welcome you to country today isn't just about a welcome, as, as other people have said. It's about their survival. And just think about that for a moment, like how lucky we are to have sovereign people stand in front of you when the invaders came, their sole purpose was to wipe us out as a race of people. So Wurundjeri people allow you all 
to benefit from their land, to live on their land. And I think that, you know, we need to acknowledge that. And Wurundjeri Land Council pay rent to the convent in Collingwood. When it should be the other way around. So that's a direct action that if anyone wants to take up. Um, I, I too want to acknowledge um, the Aboriginal women in the room. Um, it is hard being a, a black woman in this country. The struggle is real and it's every day. It's every single day. We've had four deaths in three weeks in Victoria. Those four deaths were all affected by the stolen generation. Those four deaths have to do crowdfunders to raise money just to bury our people. Another direct action. So let's talk about violence against Aboriginal women. Let's talk about it truthfully and openly without fear of more violence or judgment against our women. Most of you would know that Aboriginal women are 10 times more likely to die from violence and 34, more ti 34 times likely to be hospitalised as a result of violence. So let's talk about the systemic violence against our women that white women don't experience. Let's talk about it as uncomfortable as it may be. How safe is it for an Aboriginal woman to call for police protection? I know when I was in a family violence situation and I called the police and begged them not to tick the Aboriginal box because I didn't want my community to know my business, they went away and ticked that box. So my confidentiality was shot and it made me think twice about ringing them again. Why should we ring the police when they turn around and blame us and think that we're the perpetrator in that situation? Why should we call the police when we're less likely to be believed about our situation? We are the fastest growing prison population, Aboriginal women. Why should we call the police? Ninety-five percent of our women in prison are affected by family violence or sexual assault. Why? System failures and abuses over 230 years of colonisation. Inequality, poor health, education, stolen children, homelessness and most of all systemic racism. Why are our people homeless in our own country? Why are we the poorest people in our own country? 
it's the women that wear the brunt in our families and our communities. And yes, we are strong women and we come from very strong matriarchal lines. But it's friggin' hard. And our kids see this. So when you are a strong black woman, your kids are affected by that. My own kids have been affected by that. Colonial violence occurs every day in our lives and it's not until we start talking about race inequality and the settler colonial impacts instead of just talking about gender inequality. We need to start talking about race inequality to address this injustice against our women. The very fact that an affluent white woman living in the north shore of Sydney has greater access to services and support than Aboriginal women. Our women won't call for help when rates of child removal are at unprecedented levels in this state alone. And the child protection system treat our women who experience family violence as the perpetrator. Too often I've had Aboriginal women calling me saying that DHS are harassing them because they've just left a family violence situation. They immediately have DHS knocking on their door, checking the bedrooms, checking the cupboards, as if they were the perpetrator. Think about the services who are not responding adequately to our people's needs. Two years later, I received my, what is it, compensation for being in a family violence situation. Two years later, that was my experience. In fact, it came to me at the end of my parliamentary time. I got a letter from family violence service I was using saying, hey, you've got your free gym membership and you've got some massages and you've got some counselling sessions. Two years. That was my experience. So we need to think about these services and the inadequacy of them, particularly some of these Aboriginal organisations who purport to be supporting us and servicing us, who are actually indigenising colonialism, where profits and power are made and built from removing our children. And where Section 18, in the name of self-determination, is not the answer. We have two and a half thousand children in out-of-home care in this state. We have a state government who are spending $1.8 billion on prisons whilst our women have the highest rates of imprisonment ever in the state and it's growing. A state who are tough on law and order whilst our women and grandmothers die in custody from being charged with being drunk in a public place. Let's talk about Miss Dew. 
a young Aboriginal woman who went to the police for help for family violence and they jailed her for parking fines. Miss Dew complained of being in pain from the injuries she sustained for being assaulted. The police sent her to the hospital where doctors and hospital staff thought she was putting on an act. And they didn't check her injuries because she, they thought she was a drug addict. She was sent back to the cells where she died from an infection from being hit in the ribs and died in the most excruciating way in that police cell from family violence injuries. Family violence is not our way, it's not our culture and it's not all Aboriginal men perpetrating this violence. The family violence workforce should understand white privilege and how that affects decision making in the sector that do does not meet our needs. The sector should also consider paying the rent, which enables real self-determination and self-governance. Our women don't have access to funds to just leave. Where do they go? The sector and the state need to understand the true meaning of self-determination and the need to capacity build our own community to deal with violence against our women. There are a couple of grassroots campaigns right now and one of those is the Grandmothers Against Removals which I facilitate for Victoria. And that's a movement of around 40 grandmothers who are fighting to have their grandchildren brought back into their family or their community. They aren't funded, they aren't supported, they all live with trauma every day and whilst their parents, their children may not have the capacity to look after those children, those grandmothers certainly do. There are places for our kids to go. So Grandmothers Against Removals is a, is a movement that's happening across the country of strong matriarchs that are asserting their rights to their children. We also have JIRA, which is an Aboriginal woman-led family violence organisation who are doing a power of work. And are they supported? They continually fight for funding and are treated just like the, you know, the token family violence service down the road. So they need to be supported by everyone in this room. And if you're taking Aboriginal money, particularly think about that when we have an Aboriginal woman-led service that is talking about prevention and working with our women on the front line. And as Carla said, this state is talking about a treaty. And whilst that was quite exciting three years ago, 
and put a lot of hope in our people's hearts and minds. It's not turning out so great. Yes, they are trying to cut down our Japarung trees and I'm Japarung and Tarnine's Japarung and we've been fighting that fight for 12 months and we'll continue to fight that fight. They are 800-year-old trees that were culturally modified by women on our country. The state continue to take our children away. They continue to log our forests. And they continue to lock our women up. So treaties, you know, whilst it's nice to think about, it's hard in reality when all these injustices continue to happen. So a clan-based treaty is important. It ensures that every family clan in this state has a say and is at the table to self-determine their own destiny. And even that's a fight at the moment where the state have decided that only 12 of 38 nations have a reserved seat. So when I say the struggle is real, we as Aboriginal women deal with all of those areas every single day. So please think about paying the rent. We've had some really good examples of businesses and organisations and even an um, ethical um, developer, private developer, who are starting to pay the rent so we can determine our needs. We don't want to be controlled by government anymore. We need to self-determine ourselves. And paying the rent for being on stolen land isn't a big ask. So I urge you to think about that personally and within your organisations. If RMIT paid a dollar a year, that's $60,000 a year. So it's time to take action. We've got Grandmothers Against Removals and we have Pay the Rent and we have JIRA. Thank you very much. That was Lydia Thorpe and before her, a health educator from RED. And thank you to Gender Victoria for the use of their audio. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Women on the Line. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR. The show is funded by the Community Radio Foundation and distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can email us at womenonthelineline at gmail.com. You can also download this podcast from our website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Women on the Line page where you'll find all of our previous programs. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.